Mr. and Mrs. Kincaid have asked that I say a word of comfort to you, if I could. If there is any word of comfort I can give you, it's just this, that the face of the beast always becomes known, and the time of the beast always passes. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fear of God podcast. My favorite podcast, I can only imagine it's your favorite podcast. Here at The Fear of God, we find the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. I am one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. This is a very exciting week. Uh, We are diving back into our uh, umbrella series for the year. Uh, Typically with me is uh, fellow co-host Reed Lackey. he was here a minute ago, but he said something about needing to go hunt up some private justice. You know, typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, but you know, he was here a minute ago and then he excused himself as he was worried he was going to make lemonade in his pants. <laughs> oh. You know, typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And Reed is a, a, a you know a bit of a, a bookworm. He was here a minute ago, but he was like, Nathan, Nathan, just hang on. I gotta finish this new book release, that of the Hardy Boys and the Reverend Werewolf. Um, you know, I was I was a fan of the Hardy Boys in the, you know, eighties. Um, you know, I I did not know they were publishing new editions of Hardy Boy books, but that that's pretty exciting. He'll have to let us know how that book ended. You know, typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, and and y'all, I just I just gotta forewarn you, okay? He wants to record tonight because this is a this is a very special movie to him. He's but he's so excited for this conversation about this particular movie that he said he feels like a virgin on prom night. <laughs> while while we wait for Reed to recover from whatever various and sundry. Sundry activities he has in, chosen to engage in. Um, while we wait for him to return, I did just want to encourage you, entreat you, implore you. Um, you know, I'm not above begging uh, if it comes to that. Um, to go and leave us a review. Go and leave us a rating. You've been listening to us for a while. You've been trying to figure out this whole fear of God thing. What are these weirdos talking about horror movies and Jesus? You know, even when they talk about Jesus, not quite like how other people talk about Jesus. Go talk about it. Go tell people about it in the form of a five-star rating 
or a glowing review. We would very much uh, appreciate that. Uh, uh, Reed, Reed, you have returned from Hello. hunting from hunting up justice, making lemonade, reading Hardy Boys, and a little too much excitement, my friend. How are you, Nathan? You're a booger. I just want to let you know I, you're a booger. You know? That's all that's, I got to say. You're that is, a booger. That is, that is very much the insult born of a 70-year-old man in a 30-year-old man's body. <laughs> <laughs> you booger! Oh, get the booger! <laughs> you're just an old rascally booger. Woo! Oh, hey, buddy. Well, hey, hey buddy. buddy. Welcome, welcome hey. back from, from your misadventures. Um, yes, yes. I'm glad to have you. So uh, it is, you know, it's not too deep of a cut for Stephen King fans for you to have mentioned, you know, like the the whole lemonade thing. Uh, that's one of my what? One I'm of making my, a Beyonce reference. Sure, I know, I know. Oh, that <laughs> album is fire. So, um, but no, I was uh, th- one of my favorite Stephen King short stories, uh, the man in the black suit. The yeah. uh, the one where the guy, but that's how he taunts him. Is he said he keeps he makes the little boy Billy, uh, basically relieve himself because he's so scared and uh and he's he's keeps saying I smell Billy's lemonade. That was his, wow, that was his, like, recurring, <laughs> recurring, recur- like the devil's recurring taunt. To, I to smell him. Billy's. Yep. Lemonade. Wow. Yeah. It's a you yeah. Know, King- King has oh man, we should have had the foresight to like hone in on a king a kingism for these episodes. But oh, we didn't sure. about it, and so here sure. we are. But we'll do it right now in, in a really <laughs> organic, clunky fashion. King has these like interesting is aphorism the word I'm looking for? You know, just these things that are kind of unique to him that just whether it's Billy's I can smell Billy's lemonade or whatever it is you just said. I mean, um, maybe. You know, like he well, it's like the Christ of King. Like he loves, he loves to say, "Make water." Like so and so. Oh water. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. As like, well, as like they peed. Sure, sure. Well, and him having those things. I don't know if aphorism is the right word, but him having that repeat, those sort of repeated language is definitely true. I mean, he yeah, stuff shows up all the time. Little like we we've commented before on the show about apotheosis. I love yes. that word. He tries to squeeze it into almost every major novel somewhere yeah. of something. Um, I mean, whenever yeah. whenever apotheosis shows up in a king book, I make water. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what happens after that? You, when, when life gives you apotheosis, you make lemonade. Wow. So just to clarify here, an aphorism is a pithy observation that contains a general truth. Oh. Uh, you know, not exactly uh, proper context, but not not, you know. There's worse ways to use that word than what I just did. There are way worse ways to use that. Like I made, <laughs> like I made an aphorism is not the appropriate use. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I don't know. I just, I just, I just threw the the definition off my screen. So I'd have to compare it. I'd yeah. have to compare notes there. Uh, like, yeah. If you, you, if know, you don't stop I, this, I'll I, kick your aphorism. You know, right. 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 <laughs> I just aphor- I just aphoristically, you know, kind of yeah. threw it out. Aphorisms to aphorisms. You know, like that. It just. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Wow! All right, so Reed, we're in the, we're ju- we're back in we're back in goodness gracious, moving right along. We are in nineteen, man. Yes, we are like hashtag what did nineteen. We, do? we did the mist last week. We did yes. Pet Cemetery two weeks ago. Hmm. What did we do before that? Uh, before that was us. Just us. Oh, okay. Well, that wasn't King. 
that wasn't no, king. that wasn't. King. Um, so so we're 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 back into the king. <laughs> we're in the swing. Yeah, of well, no, we had done. Yeah, this year we've done. You know, nineteen twenty two. We did Gerald's game. Um, yeah, we did Pet Cemetery. Um, so yeah, we've we've had some fun stuff coming up. We uh, we are starting a little mini series here, uh, a mini series within the larger series. Um, so yeah, we did the mist and now here we are diving into, I'm, I'm very, very excited to talk about this movie and sort of slant by, uh, this little book. Um, and that is the film is called silver bullet. The book it is based on, or the novella, if you will, is called cycle of the werewolf. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Riri. Hey, well, what you watching? <laughs> what you reading? What you listening to? Oh I man! I appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate uh, just, you too. I, I, I just I feel like I flew into this recording like Kramer on Seinfeld. I'm just like <laughs> I did not I did not get a chance to gr- glance at my notes. I had a lot going on today, and <laughs> yeah, I literally. Walked in the door, made a ham sandwich, and pulled up, <laughs> pulled up Google Hangouts. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, uh, no worries at all. Well, can I share something with you real quick? You can. I so, would love if you shared something with me. So Nathan had posed out to our listeners uh, on the Facebook group and the Facebook page um, to find out what you guys have been watching, reading, and or Isn't that sweet of us listening to. Yeah, yeah. To make our fans part of our show, yeah, that I think that's pretty common practice. But it is still sweet. So yeah, we're gonna. So, but what we're gonna do is, uh, we are gonna pick uh, one or two of those to share uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, and so you can find those posts on the Facebook group or the Facebook page and uh, share your thoughts if you have not done so already. But can I share one with you? You can. Really I'm looking forward this to this. Okay, because so, I really don't want to hear what you're watching regular I just want to hear what our listeners. Wow. All right. I know. That was a little too <laughs> saucy. I'm sorry, buddy. That <laughs> was that was not lemonade. So, um okay, so uh Meredith Curran um has said I'm going to read her whole post because I think it's cool. She says, "How do I keep this short? I'll do my best." She says, "I just finished reading A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. The only reason I'm recommending this book is because it scared the crap out of me and I don't want to sit with this alone." Fifteen years after the demise of her family, Mary Barrett agrees to work with an author who wants to unravel her perspective of what happened in the house she occupied with her family during her early years. Her sister, Marjorie, began to display strange and horrifying behavior. Their religious father believed it was demon possession. Their skeptical mother preferred to keep her head buried in the sand. After being laid off, desperate for income, the Barrett family agreed to allow a TV network to basically document the undoing of their family. Was it demon possession, mental illness, a cry for attention? And she says, I almost didn't finish this book. I'm still not quite sure how I feel about it. Marjorie's behavior was beyond unsettling. There were some things I really appreciated theme-wise, and there's a lot going on beyond the surface here, and I never found myself bored or wondering what else I could be reading. So the reason that I specifically honed in on Meredith's recommendation is because I've never read anything by Paul Tremblay yet, but he has hit my radar a lot. I get through like Goodreads and Amazon and stuff like that, uh, his name and his books, not only A Head Full of Ghosts, but also I think his other book, The Cabin at the End of the World. There's a couple of his books that keep sort of popping up, like, hey, Reed, you should check this out. Uh, it sounds like it would be up your alley for what you like. So I was very curious when she mentioned that. And the premise does sound 
tremendously intriguing. So uh, formally, Meredith, thank you very much for that recommendation. Uh, I think I may finally dive into Paul Tremblay's work, and I'll start with A Head Full of Ghosts. And when I eventually get to that, I'll share my thoughts with all of you. Awesome. Well, that's fun. Now, do you have a personal what you're watching? No, why don't you share another one from the listener, and then we'll, okay. and then we'll see. I'll do that. You know what's really fun about this? So, uh, listeners, I didn't know who Reed would pick to share, but I just want to, I just want to shout out. I'm about to share someone too, and both Meredith and this person are Charlotte-based folks. So Reed, Ooh, you're, you're, all right. Your side of the country needs to start representing, brother. Because uh, hit it you know, up, guys. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, you, and to and to uh, uh, be real specific, we will. I'll, I'll probably pin this to the Facebook page or something. You know, we want to return to these, so don't think because you didn't get. Yours isn't getting read this particular episode that it won't in the future. Uh, regardless, Absolutely. I want to shout out Jason Barnes. Jason and I go back Jason. a solid, a solid decade to a dozen years at this point. It's a little cray cray. Um, our fellow nerds and Jason, he just, he went, he went right to the heart. Uh oh. He uh oh. Breed, Jason. What did he say? And this, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can dovetail this into our own little minisode about this um jason decided to share with us that he had just watched the avengers Endgame. Mm. Mm. so listener it should oh it should be said right now go ahead and skip uh what you're watching reading listening to this episode if you want literally nothing sullied or spoiled for you about avengers yes um yes. we will talk about it after i share jason's thoughts because it's t- it's it's time i might cry um, oh, man. So Jason, uh, specifically of Endgame, said it cannot be summed up in a couple of sentences. I'm with you, JB. However, the experience I had was something I did not anticipate. I was amazed and surprised throughout the movie. I laughed. I cheered. And it's okay, Jay. You're amongst friends here. I teared up more times than I would like to admit, even during the mid-credits. I was not ready for the emotional weight of 20-plus movies being brought down on me in this glorious display of art. Not to mention the delivering of moments I've been wanting to see in action for a good part of my life. The Russos are the nerd kings of all time. Avengers, assemble. Mm. Reed! Mm. Reed, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason and Meredith, for sharing. Um, you know, yes, thank you. Reed, Reed! Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's okay. So that's what that's going to be now. Yes. So yeah, that's, that's what we should make for our watch and read listening to. Cause oh my gosh. Are you sure we need to even talk about silver bullet? Like, Uh, you know what? I, I love Silver Bullet, but if it's we tempting. just talked for the next two hours about Endgame, I, w- I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cry about and that. And even no. if we talked for the next two hours about Endgame, we would still be an hour short of that movie's runtime, <laughs> which is not something you and I can claim okay. with a lot of the movies we cover. I, it's true. I have a comment about that though. Everybody was like, "Oh my gosh, three oh, hours!" I'm not complaining. Two- oh no, I know that. No, I know that you weren't. But lots of people were like, "Oh man, watch your fluid intake. It's a three-hour movie and everything." I'm like, "Hang on, guys. Everybody, stop for just a second. Simple math." Most films these days are between an hour and 45 minutes and two hours. Okay. Most films. Um, I would actually say most films are, if we're going as low as 145, between 145 and 215 plus. But go yeah. Ahead. Okay. So, all right. So, fine. So, they're already there. Previews, straight up, if you make it in time for the previews, previews are 20 minutes, sometimes 25, period. And, and you are already there at your, like, 
you know, close to three hour mark. It's so amazing to me how people have been like, oh my gosh, it's three hours. And I'm like, that is really only, I mean, it's only 30 minutes longer than Infinity War. I mean, it's, it is kind of, you know, it, it is longer technically, but I'm like, there's not that much. And particularly the way Endgame's last hour is paced, that last oh hour feels gosh. like five minutes. I mean, it just zooms. The whole movie doesn't, <sighs> but that last hour feels very, very tight and propulsive. And I think that was the thing. For me, it felt very much, I don't know how much we want to get into this, and we do have Silver Bullet to talk about, but um, I mean, for we me... Really don't. <laughs> <laughs> For me, uh, Endgame kind of felt like three distinct uh, films uh, with different sort of tones. The the first being sort of the more moan, mournful aftermath of Infinity War. The middle one being the sort of you time know, heist, height time heist, and then the last being you know I mean there's no better way to say it. Avengers Assemble. I mean that is that is the last hour of that movie. And um, I mean I, I felt like it was just so. I don't know. I think it was everything that it needed to be. I don't see how they could have done it. No. Better. Well, yeah. I mean, oh, I thought you were still on the runtime thing. No, I totally agree no, with no. you. Like, I mean, Reed, it's been, it makes me sad to reflect on this, that in our going on 20 years of friendship, the last decade plus, we've maybe seen maybe seen 10 movies in the theater together and none right, of them have been MC, right. MCU movies. Right. Like I, I can't, I can't, um, it would be a disservice to you and to me and to the film to falsify this. I can't recreate my visceral experience watching that movie for the first time on the Thursday night of opening mm. night. And you got to mm. see it even ahead of me, but yeah. like the, What? What? <laughs> I mean, I, I made a comment, a uh, 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 text a buddy today, just still reflecting on it, still bowled over. And I was like, you know what? I've read comics for 30 years almost. Mm. And you watch that movie and it's almost like, yeah, I'm done. I don't know how y'all can <laughs> further, further distill these characters into their purest essences. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, they oh, have, yeah. yeah. They have so. And, and I mean, I, you know as far as the three hour thing goes like shut up who cares like <laughs> it's it's the culmination of 21 movies like what yeah oh yeah you know no, even if even if it weren't a direct sort of sequel to infinity war like it's still got to hit so many various notes and i mean goodness gracious read i was like i wasn't medically there was nothing i wasn't concerned about myself medically like i was going to <laughs> suffer some sort of stroke or something or faint sure but in terms of pure visceral physical response you know just sighing and and breathing heavy and oh yeah groan groaning and teary and outright weeping and whatever the line is between like cheering and yelling i like cross <laughs> i crossed it multiple times right um, right right, right. And we haven't even talked about the content of the movie, which you don't, I guess, suppose really have to do. But, um, oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a phenomenal achievement. I couldn't be. And you know what? Here here's what I will say. We can. I mean, we can say revisit it. this and whatever. But maybe uh, for the sake of anybody listening out there who has not seen it the past week, maybe we we can you know bypass some of the specific content of the movie. But this is this is a phenomenal achievement on Marvel's part. And I don't think 
even by Marvel, it will ever be recreated by anybody. But I think I mean, even Marvel. I mean, we're will never reco- we're recording on a what day is it? Today's Monday. Yeah, that's how scattered my head is. Uh, it released on Thursday night. It has made one point two billion dollars globally. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, not not including today. Um, and I mean, like, what what in the world? Oh yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. I don't want to like totally deviate from specific content beats because we did give a spoiler warning, so I don't feel oh, too sure, badly. Sure. But like, if you if you had to pick a favorite scene, and I know it's hard. Uh, that is be? difficult. That is difficult. Uh, I think um, it doesn't have to be the favorite. It is a favorite. Just a favorite. Okay. Yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, then I will pick because it's the one that I kept telling everybody to look out for i didn't spoil it for them i I did not spoil the end game for anybody although i felt very felt very powerful because i saw it like two days before most of my peers did uh, at a early screening and yeah i said to everybody that i like i had thanos's glove on and i could just snap all of their expectations in a whim i don't well lest we forget you can have the glove and not have the power that's a good (laughs) point oh that's a good point so the one that the one that really got me the one i keep thinking about is Cap's rising up after sort of taking a bit of a beating. Uh, He drops his shield, his shattered shield at that point, and he takes a few steps forward, this look of determination on his face that he knows, you know, he's just going to give it his best, but he doesn't know if he's going to beat Thanos. Um, And then suddenly in his ear, he hears an old friend say, Cap, do you read me? And it's Falcon. And then when he says, Cap, on your left, and when Cap turns and sees the first of Portal. many yeah. portals open up and Black Panther emerges and then that follows with just all the portals opening up and everybody emerging onto the scene. I, I don't have words to describe the feeling that I, I came up in my chair. I was in a crowded screening. I stood up. I stood up, had to quickly sit back down because I was blocking somebody, but I, I could not resist. I stood up where I was at. It was unbelievable and beautiful and powerful and wonderful and i just loved it so that was my if i was to pick a favorite moment if not the favorite moment i would pick that one it was magical it Um, was magical is a good word for it i mean yes i think that whole sequence uh from from when cap thinks he's has to go it alone up until the avengers assemble is maybe one of the most Mm. stunning stunning sequences of any of these this era maybe ever of these comic book movies but in terms of exaltation and and unexpectedly uh a moment unexpected i just like i i um i'm really proud of me if i can say that okay because post the the trailer of the black and white footage you know what i'm talking about yeah Once of they course released yeah. that initial that one of those earlier trailers i i really did not expose myself to anything past that like i didn't I didn't seek out anything. I didn't casually observe anything. I chose not to watch any trailers. So I really was very, um, uh, the only thing that had been murmuring for some time was time travel. So I was kind of anticipating that, but I didn't know exactly what that would mean or anything like that. So other than that, I really had no clue what we were getting in for, which is such a magnificent sort of feeling for a three hour movie like this. Yeah. But so, so in terms of things that were unexpected, I just was not thinking about it whatsoever. And so the close-up in the big battle, uh, uh, Thanos has, um, or Thanos, as some <laughs> of the actors call him and maybe some of the movie people call him, but or the characters, uh, when he has Stormbreaker on, bearing down on Thor's chest, actually is beginning to slice the armor. 
and then you see the close-up of Mjolnir and the split second of like, oh, wow, Mjolnir is going to Thor. And then I was like, oh, sh- yeah, no. Yeah, uh, yeah, I started yeah. slapping the guy next to me who actually was a buddy. Um, shout out Sloan. I started slapping him. and I was like, it's Cap! It's Cap! It's oh, Cap! And gosh. then it shows Cap wielding the shield. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the hammer. And I was like, I, I, like I, you, you, I felt <laughs> lightning was coursing through me. I felt like I was holding the hammer with him and, and we were all battling the forces of evil together oh my gosh that's like, so great you know and jason jason made a reference to the russo brothers specifically and, and and goodness gracious they can write whatever blank check they want at this point in their career but like i don't know i don't i don't mean this uh coyly but you've seen it the one time so far is that right yeah i've only seen it once yeah um i've with my a-list i've snuck in twice for separate hours of the film other than the initial screening so did have the opportunity to rewatch that final hour and the choreography, once mm. Cap has the hammer, uh, when he is one on one with Thanos. Oh, it's and incredible. it's 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 uh, oh my gosh, what? Yeah. I, I mean, it's that unreal. Between between the because this is before Thanos has started breaking the shield. Oh yeah, so he's he's like slinging the shield and throwing the hammer, and the hammer's bouncing off the shield, and the shield's bouncing off the hammer, and he's just beating the. Out of Thanos. Oh my god. Yeah, oh I mean, yeah, it's so phenomenal. It's and then and phenomenal. then and then Avengers assemble. Whole, yeah. I mean, like you can't yeah. you can't oh, like yeah. you could the, the the Lord could have taken me right there. <laughs> and I don't and I don't even really believe in the rapture, but it could have happened and I would have been like, All right, cool. Man, Babylon you know? Babylon B released something that said uh what is or like it's, it, I forget what their headline before it was like, you know, in uh in strong declaration or whatever, Jesus returns like moments before the Avengers Endgame premiere. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> Thank oh. you, Jesus, for not doing that. I love you. <laughs> um all right, so I guess without further ado, I think that's uh we should say that that is uh one more installment of what you watch and read and listening to what you watch and read and listening to do do is it's beautiful that is great my son was playing with his little plush guys uh-huh. and he has little plush guys of like Mario and Luigi and Waluigi and then all of a sudden I see him, I hear him say, daddy, daddy. So I looked over at him and he's, and he holds up and he's got the, a little wooden thing that we built at Lowe's of the Avengers twin jet. Uh-huh. And uh, so then he, he's holding it and he's like, only Luigi can pick this up. And Mario <laughs> was fighting while Luigi. And then all of a sudden, like Mario, like summoned the Quinjet over and That's like amazing and like held it. And I was and he just did this all on his own. He saw the movie just once. And it was it was great. It was so great. I felt so proud. It was awesome. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I took my big kids and my oldest one. Like she's already pretty emotionally fragile. She was just <laughs> pretty much pretty much from go. She oh, was just a weep, a weepy mess. I mean, I can't blame her. I was kind of right there with her. <laughs> You're like, I know, I know. Dude, oh, I know man. we're trying to get away from this, but my other A-list sit-in for 45 minutes was the very beginning and happened to be today, so it's fresh in my mind. Man, they 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 tap a vein with that first hour. It's Yeah, yeah. It's like it's hard. Yeah, it it's really all, heavy. It oh, gets it's me all heavy. sad. Yeah, it's very, very heavy. Um, and, and the gravity of the yeah, the gravity of everything that they're dealing with and everything. It's 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 really an outstanding achievement. It's really an outstanding achievement. Um, 
But silver bullet. What are we really here for? It's <laughs> good to say. But another another outstanding achievement on a <laughs> on a somewhat lesser level um, was. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So we are here to talk about hashtag nineteen. Um, I keep Ooh. going back and forth because like yes. So the the film is silver bullet. The novella is cycle of the werewolf. Do you mind if I? Uh, oh, uh, do you mind if I hit you with a few like little. Uh, Trivial bits about this little piece of information, this little piece of thing. Hit me, Riri. Hit you. All right, I'll hit you with Thor's hammer and Cap's shield. Um, okay. Don't do that. <laughs> um, so I really like King has because of the popularity of his name and and sort of his brand as an author. Um, he's been given a lot of opportunity to do some sort of like publishing experimentation, uh, things that maybe publishers would like to sort of try to market or try to do, but they can't do it with just a random author. They need to do it with something that's like a, a supreme pedigree that they know they'll be able to market just on the name alone. This was originally conceived as like a specialty calendar wherein the owners and the readers would get every month they would turn, they would get a an illustration by legendary comic artist Bernie Wrightson, and they would have a small bit of text from, of course, Stephen King. Uh, but King himself really struggled. As we know, his books can be of uh, just gargantuan length, and he really struggled even with the you know somewhat flexible time frame to keep the chapters brief enough for printing logistics. So ultimately, that calendar project was abandoned, and they instead pivoted into a special novella that was published in an edition that has all of Bernie Wrightson's planned illustrations and the full complete text, uh, you know, totaling somewhere in the neighborhood of like 110 pages, 110, 115 pages called, again, called Cycle of the Werewolf. And uh, I've always loved that story because I thought like, yeah, that would be really cool to have a calendar. I don't know that anybody would wait, you know, through to December to read the entire material, but uh, but I thought that was a pretty cool concept, a cool idea. Um, they then... I, I, I love the notion that maybe they just didn't think of that. Like it loved, I love <laughs> just pondering that it's like, no, it's a great idea. And then they go through the whole, the whole <laughs> you know, cost of printing and shipping also and then it's like um are people really gonna wait month to month to read these chapters <laughs> right anyway right. sorry this is where <laughs> no 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 goes. of course when it's, when it's tired no of course of course um so i have a couple of other pieces of just random trivia that i'll try to get through um king wrote the screenplay you know it's funny i neglected to mention uh in our conversation a couple of weeks ago about pet cemetery that King also wrote the screenplay for the 89 adaptation as well. So he's done that a few times. Um, he adapted this screenplay uh, particularly as well. And I think it's one of the strongest adaptations of his work. I'll get to some of that when we get into likes, dislikes. Also, um, the director of this film, Daniel Attias, I think is uh, how you say his name. Um, he was actually, this. he's got a ton of television credits, but this is his only feature film credit. I'm not quite sure why he never went on to direct another feature. Maybe just just that's not how things played out. But originally, this was going to be directed by Don Coscarelli. Do you know, does that name mean anything to you? Mm, Offhand? No. So, okay, so he's most popular and known for the Phantasm franchise, but mm. we've covered him before in that he directed Bubba Hotep. Oh. So, and this was going to be directed by him, but it was also produced by Dino De Laurentiis, and there were presumably a lot of uh, complications and you know creative differences between Dino De Laurentiis and some of the other 
figures uh, pushing this project forward, most specifically Don Coscarelli and Stephen King himself. One of the main sort of differences that they had was De Laurentiis wanted a very uh, bombastic, ostentatious, and impressive werewolf. Stephen King, Don Coscarelli, and the creature designer Carlo Rambaldi wanted something a bit more subtle. Uh, they wanted to sort of operate in, in you only see parts of him, and it's sort of done with more shadows, and they wanted something that was a bit more like actual animalistic. Um, and so there was all of these complications and confrontations about it. Don Coscarelli eventually walked from the project and De Laurentiis was presumably given like an ultimatum, like, okay, shelve this project, don't do this project, or let us do it the way we want to do it. And, and Laurentiis uh, relented, uh, say Laurentiis relented several times real fast, but um, he basically did that. And then Daniel Attias no. came, <laughs> came on uh, to complete the project. My last little bit of uh, trivia is uh, Tarker's Mill is a town that's referenced in several other pieces of King material uh, because it's it's near oh. it's a fictional town King created. Um, it borders towns like Castle Rock, Derry, um, and most particularly Chester's Mill from Under the Dome. Um, mm. But thus far, this is the only, even though it's mentioned several times, this is the only story in which King has actually set the story in Tarker's Mill. Um, but uh, so anyway, it's you, funny you say that because is it? I think it's. In this, is there a is there like a highway sign for Derry? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's okay, visible okay. in this. Yeah, that there's yeah. a sign for Derry because it's like I don't have a map in front of me. Which there's been <laughs> one published like in some of his books where he actually has like you know Stephen King's Maine. You could probably Google right. Stephen King's Maine. Um, but yeah, so Tarker's Mills is next to. I, it's funny because I can't remember at the moment if it's Mill or Mills. I've heard it both ways, but Tarker's Mill and Chester's Mill like make up Revelation and Revelations. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like Tarker's Mill and Chester's Mill make up like the twin, the twin mills. That's what they're colloquially called in King's verse. But uh, anyway, yeah. But this is the only story that's actually set in Tarker's Mill. I thought that was interesting. Now, I um, just due to life and time did not read. Um, the calendar, but um, <laughs> are there any super dramatic differences? Surprisingly, there's more deaths in the in the novella. Um, but another pivot, and again, King adapted this, but another really big pivot, one that I actually love, and it makes me, I'm fond of the novella, but it makes me more fond of the film. So uh, the character of Uncle Red, who is actually Uncle Al in the book, but uh, his uncle plays a much more prominent role in the, I, I shouldn't even say prominent, because the character of Uncle Red in the book does all the same things that the character of Uncle uh, Uncle Red does in the film, but he is not as involved in the conversation or the dialogue. He doesn't know why he's doing the things he's doing. Like, um, he does give Marty the fireworks. He does work out the silver bullet. He does all of those same things, but Marty then just goes off and does the things on his own. I like that in the film, they make Uncle Red an actual active part of what's taking place because I kind of like that he has a little mini redemptive arc given what we know about like his past and the complications and everything like that. I, I like that he's along for the ride. Uh, the other major difference is that though he has a sister, the sister does not narrate it and is not as the, the whole sister brother relationship and dynamic is not really present in the book. Hmm. So those, those things. So basically I could sum it up by saying the, some of the emotional beats that the film 
really leans into are not totally present in the book. The book is much more compartmentalized. Um, it's also spread out more. Uh, Marty himself is not, I mean, he, he does the same things he does, but it's not his story. Um, it's only like he only pops in in like the relevant chapters that are important to him when something happens to drive the story forward. Hmm. So yeah, King chose to make the movie a much more sort of full-bodied arc for Marty and his family, um, and uh, and I really like that. I think it. I think the film is stronger for it. So um, what? I mean, this was your first time seeing it, right? This you've never seen it all. No, I, I was no, I had not read it. I mean, I had heard the title "Cycle of the Werewolf" in terms of King's work, but I had not read it, and I had definitely not seen this film. Um, so <laughs> you'll get a kick out of this. So mm. I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't read anything. I had zero knowledge, and I came to love this once I understood what what it was working with here. I just I had no idea that the wheelchair aspect of it was the silver bullet. Oh, and, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> so, when you don't know that, and you just see Marty in the thing, and then he and Brady and uh, uh, Anne Shirley with an E uh, have their <laughs> encounter. Um, come on, let's shout out Megan Follows. Oh, girl. absolutely. Yeah. Um, they have their kind of altercation at the park or wherever it is. The yeah, with the snake. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, then the family station wagon... Again, this is going to sound like a real jerky commentary, but I had no I had no idea what the plot was, so I didn't know. So the station wagon is pulling the trailer with the giant wheelchair. And I, I wrote, I love that this family just drags this giant wheelchair around behind this giant station wagon as a rule. Like then she pulls out the collapsible one when they get home. But they hitch a whole trailer to the wagon to carry the motorized one. <laughs> <laughs> oh and i was like you know Corey haim is like this is like a low-key x-men origin story and he's professor <laughs> charles francis xavier in his motorized wheelchair wow. but no it just tripped me out because i'm making i'm judging this family because i'm like what are y'all doing driving around this giant wheelchair when they they literally pull up to the house and she goes and gets the much more compact collapsible version and gets it out right like, what, what is wrong with these people why did they just leave it at home <laughs> like you don't need it you don't need to it's not like you're gonna misplace it like Look at all the work you've done just for, to, for the thing you've got at home and it needs your fashion but i had oh no idea gosh. that the silver bullet in question was the was the actual oh, so once yeah. that once that happened i was like oh i dig i really dig this <laughs> <laughs> that was that was what pivoted for you for the movie it's like before that this is so dumb after that oh this well, is no great. no it, i wasn't <laughs> thinking it was dumb it was just funny like you know i like to comment on what initially are perceived as dumb actions of characters and then sure it's like, oh, of course. look at that they were actually being intentional that's a good little, <laughs> that's a good little family well i got a, i got a text from you that i that delighted me a lot just it was basically just expressing like hey this is i i liked this a lot more than i expected to like that this was a really fun flick um i feel like what's interesting when this film came out it was received with pretty mixed to negative reviews and um it was just it was just a few years after like American Werewolf in London, The Howling. So it's it, so werewolf films had been prominent, um, and Silver Bullet didn't do as well because like its marketing didn't fully 
like announce the whole conceit of the film. Um, its marketing had like a full moon and like a foggy sort of forested area. Um, and so regardless of all of that, it didn't it didn't do very well. But in recent years, I wouldn't say it's had like this full bore critical reassessment, but it has got a lot of fans. There's a lot of people who are, like myself, very fond and affectionate for this film because it had been sort of dumped onto cable where people were like, okay, yeah, let's just, just we want to run a Stephen King film, run Silver Bullet, and then with prominent repeat viewings. And I feel like this is, maybe you would agree, I don't know, but I feel like it's one of his more accessible pieces. I mean, it's not like King is unaccessible in terms of his film adaptations, but I feel like this one particularly... It's one that I would recommend to people as something that's not too horrific. It's it's not, you know, terribly graphic. It's got a couple of moments you have to sort of be watching for, but and it's got such a big heart at its center, at the center of its story, um, that I do think this is a, a really sort of palatable and and accessible again, um, approach to well, some of his work. Yeah, I think accessible is a good word because I'm processing in the moment. I don't want to relitigate sort of Pet Cemetery, but yeah. the eight, the eighty nine version of Pet Cemetery. One of the things I struggle with is it feels like such is transliteration the word I'm looking for. Translation, <laughs> okay. maybe no, a literal mean, translation. Yeah, I'd love how like aphorism transliterate. You know, I'm just <laughs> I just like multisyllabic words, and I just sort of <laughs> like multisyllabic. See if, see if they work in context, but no, like in other words. Uh, I don't mean translation because a lot of things can be that. I mean, like, <clears throat> it's such a direct copy and paste from the prose. Sure. Pet um, Cemetery, you mean. Yeah. yeah right, yeah. right, right. Pet Cemetery. That, and and I'm I'm trying to pivot towards uh, applauding Silver Bullet here. Well, um, I think I think that's one reason Pet Cemetery, the 89 film, struggles to me is at the heart of Pet Cemetery. the story is an assessment of death, an assessment of grief based in this simple, a very simple story, which is your child dies uh, tragically and you have the means to bring them back to life, but it's horrific. Like that's right, a very right. simple nugget that I think works great in the prose. But then when you transliterate it over to the film, mm. you kind of, it kind of gets buried. Whereas sure. with silver bullet, the core of it is um, kids discover something menacing that's threatening their safety and they yeah. recruit an unlikely adult to their cause. Like right. that's yeah. Yeah. effectively it. And mm-hmm. so it never feels overburdened with, with narrative, you know, it, it's, it's not too much. Um, yeah. It's very direct. It's, it's the character dynamics are really strong. I can't stand Gary Busey, but he was great. He's great in this, uh, isn't he? I was like, he really is. I don't know that I would, I would be that, uh, you know, sort of bombastic with my disaffection for him, but he's never done much for me. But I love him in this movie. I think he's so perfect for this character. He's great. He's absolutely great. I mean, I can't go without saying that John Locke is up in here. Oh my gosh, yeah, John Locke is the sheriff. Oh man, it's great. I love seeing yeah. Terry O'Quinn in these early '80s roles. They're so great. One of these days, this is a side tangent, but one of these days we should cover the stepfather just so you can see Terry O'Quinn really have like a leading role in a horror. Is film that because it's similar great. era? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's eighty. Okay, I want to say it's like eighty-four, eighty-five, somewhere around that same time frame. And I think you know, I'd speak- have to look it up. Uh, speaking of actors whose names I don't know and and didn't look up because I didn't think I'd bring it up, but 
I thought the actor playing Brady's dad was great. Oh, isn't he wonderful? Yeah. His yeah, his he's fantastic and he's he's so watchable when he's on the screen. Like every single time. Now admittedly, the the film frames him to have yeah. big moments. Um, and that helps, but even so, just his presence in the room when he first barges into the bar and is well, like, he's has got anybody's a- He's got an almost comic aesthetic to him. Like, yeah, like yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. a very distinct kind of visual style, or not style, as in he's stylish, as in just like he's got a real distinct look. He stands out on film to the that can almost be a detriment, but specifically, I remember thinking that during the scene when he discovers Brady's body. Oh, like, yeah. the, the choice to just have it on him, and he delivers. I mean, he really, yeah, he sells really does. That. And then that after effect when, like, I love that we're in kind of likes, dislikes. Um, I love that scene before the mob goes out. I love it. I love they're all plotting something. Is that private uh, justice? Yeah, the private justice moment where he comes in and, and the sheriff kind of tries to quell everything. And what finally tips the balance is Brady's dad, you know. And, right. And that, just that whole scene is so well-written and it's well-performed. You've got some really strong character actors populating this entire cast. And uh, that, that probably can't be undersold. I don't really feel like, with maybe one or two exceptions... There's any overt weak links here. There's some people who are a bit over the top and some things that are played a bit extreme, I think sometimes intentionally for, you know, exaggeration. But for the most part, you've got, you know, just workaday actors here showing up, delivering very compelling readings of the text. And it's uh, it, it really all meshes together very, it's, very well. It's funny. I, you, you can feel free to push back on this as it's just kind of coming to me. I don't think it's a weak link per se, but not knowing the story, I didn't see it coming. But I, I don't care for the the pastor's performance. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, don't care is strong. I, I just mean like because I wasn't thinking about who is the real culprit, which is kind of dumb oh. watching a werewolf movie because that's effectively what all they are. Um, but I wasn't thinking about him, and so once you know it's him, it's like, oh, yeah. He totally played it that way, you know. It's like, <laughs> right, he's definitely right, right. got a little bit of a, a an odd oddball kind of creep factor going on. Sure, um, sure. Although, well, no, we'll get we'll get to that one. Yeah, we'll get, to, we'll that get one. to that. Um. So one thing that I thought was kind of so yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, as if there's as if you needed one with us, but so the the reveal. So the in the in the novella, Marty takes the eye out with the fireworks, same way he does here. But in the novella, that happens in July, and he sh- he tells people about it, but nobody believes him. Of course nobody believes him. And then it's Halloween when he finds it out, because when he finds it out, he's going trick-or-treating door-to-door, and the reverend opens the door with an eye patch. And in the novella, his parents don't go to that reverend's church, so it has literally been months since he's seen this reverend about mm. town and the reverend doesn't recognize him because he's under a Yoda mask at the time. So then what Marty does is Marty then um, starts writing letters to the reverend telling him that he knows the the secret, that he knows the truth of his sort of werewolfness. And then he writes him several sort of like taunting letters. Meanwhile, he gets his uncle to craft the silver bullet. His uncle doesn't know like what the whole deal is. And so then Marty finally sends the Reverend a letter in December signing his name. 
saying, come, you know, come silence me if you if you want to silence me. And then the Reverend, as the werewolf, shows up, Marty shoots him with a silver bullet, and that's that's how the whole thing is revealed. So again, just very so different wait, 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 tonally wait. So and everything. Is Marty in a wheelchair in the book? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's handicapped. But but the Reverend doesn't I mean, are there several young boys in wheelchairs in this that's Hawkins? a I mean that's a that's a fair point, but no, he's he doesn't put it together. No, he doesn't put he doesn't put it together. Wow. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, Past, that is interesting. Past, pastors, pastors today. Well, because in the in the novella, <laughs> right? They just don't care. They're just not paying attention. <laughs> they um, they werewolves. They don't even notice. <laughs> They're parishioners. Um, but the novella, he they uh, the main family is uh, Catholic. They go to a they go to a completely different church. And um, so anyway, but I thought that was I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, more on my likes, dislikes list. Uh, I love the whole tone of the film. I love like the the moon is ominous in the opening shot. But then this really bright musical score beats in like this really sort of melodic pastoral kind of uh, musical store comes in. Um, but then I love how this whole film kind of balances that ominous with the sentiment and i think it does that more than many other of king's film adaptations in a way that i really i really appreciate i think it's i think it's really strong because king's books king's material are usually character driven not plot driven and the adaptations the film adaptations tend to lean in on plot they may have some strong characters here and there but they tend to lean in on plot and this is one that I feel is almost, there is a plot, but I feel like it's almost as much character-driven as it is plot-driven, focusing specifically on Marty and Janie. And uh, I think, again, I think that is a strength of the film. Uh, one other thing that I'll mention, then I'll pivot to you in case you have any more. Um, I mentioned earlier that I just I absolutely love the dynamic between Janie and Marty. I, I They feel like real siblings. Um, I just, I love everything that they do with that. I like uh, Janie's line in her voiceover narration where she says um, Tarker's Mill is a town where people cared about each other as much as they cared about themselves. I just thought that was a lovely little uh, notation about just this place and and what it means. And uh, so, yeah. And then the last thing that I'll mention is I just, I really emphasizing again, I love Uncle Red's character and how, you know, he he does, he's made some complicated choices, but I I don't know. I just love when sort of the outsider, the easily dismissed outsider is brought in on the kids who know what's going on. I just, I love stories like that. And this is, uh, this is really strong for that area. Does, you may have mentioned this and I just missed it, but does the, does the prose work feature, uh, an, an omniscient narrator or not omniscient, but you know, like a, uh, like the movie does with her as an adult. Um, no, in Marty's chapters, we're kind of told, uh, you know, it, no, it's, it's like a third, it's like a third person omniscient. It's a disembodied character who just knows all of these different things. I do think that's one of the, I mean, I agree with you that it it gives some good sort of script nuggets, but, um, I don't know that that's really a necessity because in fact, when I did watch it, it ends kind of oddly, like the the Mm. voiceover narration, the way it ends, it's like. And it turns out I do love you, Marty, or something like that. And it's like, it's, it's, it's this weird kind of like past tense kind of phrasing of like, like you expect to have like Marty passed away from complications, dude, whatever. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's, it's just an odd kind of like way it's written. So I don't, 
I don't really right. know that that's a necessary kind of component of it. But I mean, uh, again, I, I really enjoyed well, it, so I'm not knocking it overly. No, and I agree with you, but it's worth noting. Like, I think that's part of what this because essentially you could make a case this is not a story about a werewolf. Uh, like menacing a town, you could make a case that structurally, this is a story about this brother and sister, and they're oh yeah 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 and yeah, I, and yeah I, I set totally against agree with that. set against the backdrop of this you know freaky werewolf invading the town. But uh, but I think I don't know. I, th- I think that's part of what really draws me to the film and keeps me coming back to it with so much affection is that yeah, at its heart, it's this sibling story, and I think that's why it ends on the note that it does. It doesn't end with like just oh we've revealed it and now that's over and done with it ends with this note of her specifically saying yeah i i, I couldn't always you know sort of understand my love for you she doesn't say it that clunkily but you know what i mean like i i i, I don't know i think that I find that rather uh lovely for for lack of yeah a and and having the narration and again i'm not knocking the narration writ large but it's just it lands a little funny in the actual text but having the narration gives the total total film a more kind of wistful tonality to it that i kind of yeah. appreciate in terms of other likes dislikes i mean i've got i've got a bunch of like dumbass notes like i take occasionally like quoting austin powers when the kid the guy's head gets chopped off at the front and, <laughs> you know i mean he'll never get ahead in life um <laughs> wow uh let's see now, now a, a non uh comedic note here i love this is a real hyper specific um in ian's favorite word for me uh, a very granular moment um (laughs) there's a really great shot uh when marty is out on the dock shooting the fireworks there's this really effective shot of the firework embers hitting the surface of the water that then reflect oh yeah that's a really great shot yeah oh i totally agree with that i love there's a couple of shots that i'll bring up again that are in sort of more uh, I'm pivoting them into scares moments, but there there are some really well constructed, just singular shots and singular scenes in this movie. I think that are more impressive than they probably got credit for at the time, or even probably get credit for now. Uh, yeah, it's it's really really effective. Do you uh do you have any more lingering likes dislikes, or you want to talk about some scares real quick? Uh, before we talk into scares, I just got to mention that dweeby drunk dad watching wrestling, and you know when somebody gets hurt, Sick. he's like. <laughs> Say it. It's on my notes. I wasn't going to say it because I was like, oh, Reed's used to me taking the lowest common denominator here. But I'll just skip over it. He's watching wrestling and he was just like, oh, that hurts my parts. (laughs) I just love, I love this moment that this moment happened because I'm staring at that note. I've been staring at it for a while wondering, is there going to be an opportunity to talk about this? Everybody knows Nathan loves to go for the innuendo jokes and talk about hurting people's parts and stuff like that. Watching wrestling. (laughs) You know what? I'm I'm a little discombobulated at the moment. I'll just leave that note by. And then you're like, wait, 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 wait. Before we leave likes, I'm just going to talk about the wrestling scene. And oh I was gosh. like, that is perfect. That is it's such a so, great so Reed and Nathan great. moment. Oh, it's so mm. great. It's so great. But yes, there are some. And it's funny, too. I, I think... Um, you know, I do. I do think objectively, we're pivoting into scares now. I think objectively, like American Werewolf in London, no question. Possibly even The Howling are maybe objectively better films, uh, like just in terms of sheer technical mechanics. I think this might be my favorite werewolf movie. I think it might be. Like watching would, it again, every, I love yeah. it. I love it I, so much. I, I would not. Because we did the Howling and American Werewolf, right? Are those the yeah? Two those are the two. Those covered? are yeah, and the Wolfman. But yeah, 
Oh, well, right. But that's more <laughs> right. just like that. And, and, and set up against the rest of these, that one may as well just be called Harry Guy. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, I don't really care for the howling. Um, I do like the things American Werewolf has on its mind, but I mm. don't know that I would personally, maybe with a rewatch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll phrase it this way. Only one viewing of each of those. This one easily stands above in yeah. terms of just affection, just general, like, I like this movie. I would be open yeah. to sitting down again and watching it with somebody. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, in terms of scares, um, one, I actually thought the, it was actually uh, Hurt My Parts guy. Um, <laughs> it was, that was a really, he has a really effective death scene. Oh yeah, where he get like where he creeps into the greenhouse and then like yeah. pulled through the floor. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, but yeah, like impaled great. on his way down or something. Yeah. Oh man, it's pretty. It's pretty gnarly. Yeah, it's great. That's gnarly. really great. That's a good word for it. Yeah, it is. Uh, I I wrote down that the pregnant girl's murder is pretty brutal, but that was the very start of the movie, so I was like, wow. That's... Yeah, yeah, it is. It's pretty gruesome. And it's kind of twisted too that he justifies killing her because he was trying to save her. Yeah. Like yeah, it's yeah. There's. It's some it, it, yeah, there's some jacked up theology, but again, we are talking about a reverend who was a werewolf. So <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, he's he's got some twisted. I mean, twisted notes. you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I, I, I want to build a case that you could have uh, uh, orthodox and sound theology and still be a pastor who turns into a werewolf. Like those are not <laughs> those two things don't have to go furry hand and furry hand. Um, you know, whatever your whatever your affliction might be, and we all have them. It's a metaphor, right? You know, oh, exactly. So you could you could be the werewolf pastor, which you know I feel like we're stumbling into some greatness right now. To the typewriter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna put that note down. The um, werewolf pastor. Yeah, you know, he could still have some sound theology. This just this guy uh, just does not. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, b- big on my scares list. I put it on my scares list, but it, I mean it could fall in a few different places. Is the the dad that we sung the praises of a few minutes ago uh-huh. barges in and says, you know, has anybody seen my son, Brady? Cut to John Locke, the sheriff, walking, holding the bloody kite yep. and quoting the rosary. And I'm just yeah. like, oh, man, that is so effective. Because And here's one of the things I appreciate about, appreciate about movies like this is last time we saw that kid, nothing. He's just flying the kite. He's just nah, going to. You knew. I even wrote it down. I was like, Brady's, "Oh, really? Brady's oh. gone." Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. He's gone. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was you don't just, you don't mess with Ann Shirley, brother. You get that's, got. That's true. You do get got. Um, and so like, but I just thought that whole sequence where like the sheriff is just bringing the bloody kite and sitting down, and obviously all that builds up to him, you know, the them him taking him to the body and everything like that. But that was well, just a really chilling moment. And on that note, I did have bloody kite on my scares list. Like, you might could make a case they 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 almost go too far with how saturated that kite is, but it's almost like they go just far enough to to over it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's it's yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's not just this splash of of blood spurted across the kite. It is right, like right saturated. And, yeah. Oh yeah. It's so, and it yeah. almost it almost enhances the effectiveness of the moment to just mm-hmm. be like, holy cow, this is terrible. Yeah. No. No question. No question about it. Um. I'll. Uh, I have a few on my list, but um. I'll. I'll just mention uh one more, and then just see if you have anything else. Um. I love the moment, and again, it's different from the book, uh, because in the book it's Marty who discovers it on uh trick or while trick or treating, but I love 
Janie is going all through town looking for whoever is one-eyed, and it, the the film takes some time with it and breathes, yeah, and, yeah. and allows her to like meet these people. It sets up a couple of false, you know, positives a couple of well, times. Well, and there's and, those real fun shots too, real close-ups. Oh, absolutely, because that's where no, that, that's true. Uh, that's her. That's her focal point. That's what she's. That's what she's looking at. Um, and so then I think it's really a clever and effective scripting moment. That so then. Just at the time she's given up, and she's like, "Okay, now forget about it." So the, the, clearly, he was just—it's just a fabrication. He's just making it up or whatever. And then she delivers the cans to the reverend, and then they pivot down and show that the reverend's only—you know—he's got his eye is damaged. And I just—I just love that moment. I thought that moment was great. Yeah, no, it—it it really is. And it's again, that was one of those moments. I just was not, you know. Uh, maybe I didn't have my critics hat on tight enough or what, but I was not thinking about who it was going to be. Mm. And so then mm-hmm. when she rolls the, the um, you know, uh, grocery cart up and in the distance, he's crouched with the flowers and it's in profile. Like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I've only got one left and I'm worried it's going to steal yours. No, so. go ahead. No, 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 no. That's fine. Yeah, go ahead. But it's also one of the greatest sequences in the entire film. No, maybe, it is. Yeah. Maybe actually the greatest sequence in the entire film. Dude, holy shit, that dream sequence. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. If you're not going to watch this movie, at that at that point, you don't know it's the pastor. No, you don't know it's the... That's what's so brilliant about yeah, it. You don't yeah. know it's the reverend. And you also don't know it's a dream because it's immediately following the swamp hunt when like three or four of them go down to that, to that beast and right. then you it just because you've already seen a funeral scene you know you think like oh okay well this is just the next funeral scene this town's just continuing to be oppressed but then all of a sudden it takes a turn and yeah oh, and john it's... Locke, the smoke monster himself turns into a werewolf and then the whole <laughs> town does and then they're doing the 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 werewolf shuffle and the ladies the werewolf lady organist is pounded on the keys Oh, that was great. That was a great moment. So then, well, then you know it's a dream. Well, then it's kind of hard to buy that it might actually be real. Although, right, right, although, right. you know, that would have been cool too. Um, but then the, the, the reverend wakes up in a start, but yeah. not knowing the text, I was like, oh, man, this poor guy. And in fact, yeah, of course. much of my initial thematic thoughts, I was like, goodness gracious, this, this poor fella, he's, he's just... <laughs> saddled with this evil in his town like <laughs> oh my gosh yeah that's that's pretty interesting that's pretty great um yeah i uh, i love that sequence so much that is probably okay this is my favorite werewolf movie and yes the transformation sequence in american werewolf in london is brilliant i'm not going to take anything away from that but i think that church dream sequence is my favorite like werewolf moment in a movie. Yeah, oh yeah it is great. it is amazing and if you if if nothing else i mean we see this movie like let me skip to my end like i'm going to recommend this movie everybody watch this movie but even if you're just not down for it or whatever like youtube you know church dream sequence in silver bullet it is so great it's really really impressive it's great and wonderful yeah i love it um well, I have a, I, I have something by way of theme that uh, I feel pretty passionate about. I don't know if you had anything specific that you wanted to bring up uh, beforehand, or if you want to let me set the stage and then see how yours plays in. What you feeling, Nathan Rouse? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there is some interesting stuff. I don't know if this ever happens to you with these, with the material we cover, where it's like the germ of thematic idea is not necessarily the primary 
goal of the overall piece, but it just kind of yeah, 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 speak, yeah, speaks out to you. That was a little bit like this one. One, I did love the line. I mean, before you know, it's the Reverend, but I love his line: "The time yes. of the beast always passes." Oh yeah, I, no, he, the full line is, and this is my theme, so we can just go there. Oh okay. the The full line is: "The face of the beast always becomes known, and the time of the beast always passes." And yeah, I have some thoughts on that. But yes, that's what the Reverend says when Brady has died. And he right. says, the only comfort I can offer you is the face of the beast always becomes known and the time of the beast always passes. And I have, boy, I have thoughts on that. But yeah. Go, well, let me, let me, let me throw a, a, a thought at you before all of your thoughts come pouring out like, like dancing werewolves in a church setting. Um <laughs> Because another primary sort of thematic idea, and this will always like unsettle me a little bit, is this notion of redemptive violence um, manifest in the film as this private justice idea. And I don't know, I was just really mulling this notion of what happens when we lean into and pursue wickedness, even to route it out. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's too cliche to say, you know, become the monster to defeat the monster. I don't even mean that, but this is like super on the nose, but we are barely a week out from just over a week out from this, these terrible bombings in Sri Lanka. Right. Yes. Um, And I don't mean to dampen the mood, except I don't know if you saw this. So, you know, uh, uh, Islamic extremists bomb these, uh, Christian church settings on Easter. It's really awful and terrible. People die. And in the wake of it, I saw headlines about Sri Lankan Muslims being beaten mm. by, by vengeful Christians. Mm. Yeah. And then I watched this movie and I was like, Lord Jesus, help us. You know, like yeah, yeah. what we will embrace in the wake of our own loss and tragedy however grand or grand and violent or, or minor and, you know, close to home or whatever. But like, I don't know, it just really, those scenes of them ignoring uh, the sheriff really kind of have this unsettled quality to it. Yeah, of course, of course. Anyway, yeah. so those, that's, that's kind of my primary takeaways. Um, I think there's a way, uh, so something that, struck me about specifically that line the time of the beast always passes and the face of the beast the face of the beast always becomes known i'm going to uh, i'm going to sort of unpack some of my thoughts uh, in brief yeah. and then i'm going to uh try to deftly meld what you've obser- observed about the fallacy of redemptive violence um in in the midst of all of it one of the things that struck me about that cuz i have seen the film a couple of times before I did not specifically hone in on that line. Again, when you're preparing for a fear of God conversation, you kind of pick up on certain thematic things that you might not have picked up on before. But so I heard that line knowing the Reverend is the werewolf. And so it struck me pretty heavily that, Oh, he's saying this, the face of the beast always becomes known and the time of the beast always passes. And he is saying it knowing He's he's in full knowledge that he's the beast. And right. what struck me is, you know, he's speaking this truth out, and there's this notion about truth is no respecter of persons. And so 
if there is a statement that is that is true of spirituality, of the rhythm of life, of the the truth of the ultimate end of humanity and all of these other kinds of things, it is objectively true no matter who is saying it. And and so this is this is where I'm I'm trying to formulate something that was pretty pretty abstract when it struck me in the in the film but there's this notion of there are people i mean this this could be said that reverend low is a literal wolf in sheep's clothing like literally <laughs> he's he's wow. hiding hiding that he's a wolf um and is the pastor of this flock but what struck me is what he is saying about the beast and the numbered days of the beast is really objectively true and this is the I'll I'll spit out the phrase rather than try to build towards a conclusion for it. So he is prophesying his own demise. He is speaking out his he is speaking out the truth that will eventually undo him, um, because because it is objectively true. And it really struck me how people who would want to distort the truth, who would want to hide behind a an illusion of truth or maybe adopt a, a, a false narrative for something, they hide behind it and then they begin to try to tout uh, sort of self-righteousness or uh, they try to present themselves as righteous figures when really they have wolves hiding all in their in their secret person. And what just struck me so much about this is the power of that statement even when it is spoken by the beast himself like even mm. when even when the monster or the beast or the wicked one would say you know hey this this will pass it is still objectively true and i find tremendous power in that like the again just the fact that he said that is by definition to the text it's ironic but I also find it tremendously powerful to reflect on that, like, you could look around and and say, when we see things that are happening in the world that you mentioned Sri Lanka, and we think, we see things happening in the world, and then we would hear people, some of whom we may claim to be proprietors of that same sort of violence provoking rhetoric you talked earlier about the the idea behind private justice and 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 people sort of or you know redemptive violence the myth of redemptive violence there are people uh, hopefully i'm being clear here there are people who would say things about like oh well the time of the beast needs to end the time of the beast needs to come to the end or they would they would speak out these evils um when they themselves are perpetrating similar evils do you understand mm, at least the concept yeah, of what i'm talking yeah, about yeah. and and this is what struck me is like the power of that kind of thing is like oh well it's it ultimately doesn't matter who's saying it um it is still objectively true like it is a truth that evil wickedness that those days are numbered and uh, I just found that immensely powerful in this film. And I feel like some of it is bolstered by the heart behind it, um, because who ultimately brings him down? It's this, you know, sort of deadbeat uncle and this, you know, somewhat tenacious but still relatively frail um, sister and a crippled boy. Like they're the right, one, like right. like these weak and impaired and flawed individuals are the ones who ultimately undo uh, this evil, not the horde of armed to the teeth, you know, ready to fight 
wicked men. Uh, not that they're wicked. I shouldn't have sure, said that. Yeah, but yeah, just, you yeah. know, like uh, these people who are emboldened by this most, private justice most idea. Most physically positioned to, yes. to achieve their goal. Yeah, yeah Exactly. Yeah. They get slaughtered, three or four of them, when they go. And then it is ultimately in that the is, hands. That is pretty funny when the Reverend Werewolf plays baseball with that guy's bat in the fog. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on, y'all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just... I, I, I mean, we could unpack it a little bit more if we want to, and I definitely want to hear your thoughts. But that's that's really my theme. It's just like I I like coming out of this movie. I was just really struck with like, wow, yes, it is true that the beast, the face of the beast, will always become known, and that the time of the beast will always pass. And that is true even when the beast itself declares it, even when, in an effort to hide behind the illusions that he has created and upheld he declares his own demise and his own ultimate undoing and i just i find that powerful do you think and if this goes literally nowhere you can feel free to cut this whole segment but um i'm not i'm not at all ignoring your question here i'm just letting my brain go where it's going to go based on what you're talking about and sure something that did strike me in the film once the reveal is in play is you know king historically has a very mm, suspicious eye towards organized religion yeah, um he does. and i and i don't know i just that once it's really you know once the truth of the narrative sort of is is exposed you're like oh a, a kind of a cynical reading of it could be that too or maybe not a maybe that's an honest reading of it um I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud of just the, it is hard not to watch something like this and have it for a person like me and my sensibilities of, of my, my state of mind and heart, not to kind of let those cynical aspects be fed by, sure. you know, a story like this. Anyway, I don't know. Just No, well, you mentioned, me. no, you mentioned earlier, and I do think it's completely valid. He's as much as said it, that, he has a severe king has a severe distrust of like organized religion which is ironic because he was i think raised methodist and there's even an early picture of him like delivering a sermon in a methodist church like he's 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 expressed something obviously i'm i'm a christian and so sometimes the language surrounding people's expressions of faith would you know strike me in a variety of differing ways but i do i am fond of the way that king phrased this when he talked about um, faith or expressions of of God, he basically said he's like, yeah, the people who are hardcore atheists and do not believe there's anything are dismissing beauty and romantic love and the power of art and sunsets and like there's a whole bunch you kind of have to dismiss in order to really buy into it all being chaos. Um, he said at the same time, I'm really skeptical, and of course I'm paraphrasing his quote, he said I'm really skeptical of people who think they've got it all figured out and they know the entire formula from beginning to end. Um, and so I definitely don't think it's a, it's an improper reading of any of his works. Basically my conclusion in response to what you're saying is no, I think he's very distrusting of religion, but I think he's very affirming of a, a sincerely held faith or belief. Sure. Sure. Um, and I, th I think that is a, a pretty constant through line in his books, even in the times where people who do, who are, you know, we talked about the mist last week who are generally decent. Um, there are still occasions where it's just like, no, it does not go well for them. 
But I think in general, you can see the rhythm of King's work that he is definitely framed to, he's just, I think he either described it or his fans have appropriated um, that he's constantly interested in the push and pull between the chaotic and the purposeful. And that all of the players of humanity are kind of constantly pulled in between those two extremes of like something that's purely chaotic and something that's, you know, deeply purposeful and intentional. And uh, again, I I find that really compelling. He and I might not see eye to eye on every facet of organized religion. I I think we would he and I would definitely agree on its flaws, shortcomings and problems. But uh, there are still ways in which um i i have i believe in its power and its its effectiveness um and then there are ways in which i myself am very distrustful of the kind of ways we will uh formulate and compartmentalize our little worlds um and call it faith but uh but again this this i think is a story that is an echo of his distrust of religion but i definitely don't find in this film, I think it has too bright of a heart to be like an indictment. Of oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I don't, I almost feel bad, you know, um, taking us into that for the moment. But I just, it, it's something that had been on my mind. And sure, I do, th- I do think it's interesting setting this time of the beast always passes line. I think I, um, I'm not gonna say this is a negative towards the movie, but the the Reverend feels so. Uh, before you definitively know he's the antagonist, but even once it's revealed, before he gets crazy, um, mm. he feels conflicted. He he, you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's this, torn. Yeah, this yeah. time of the beast always passes, and that's why it's almost unfortunate the the dialogue he uses in the in the little farmhouse with Bray with oh uh, the bridge, right? Yeah, right, right. it's it's almost so kind of um about killing the pregnant girl like yeah. um it's it's almost it's it's such a pivot a hard pivot into just crazy town but because what i love and at least the germ of the idea is that he's when he says the time of the beast always passes he knows a that it's him and b that this town is out for blood yeah oh yeah and so there's almost this sense of is this a genuinely pastoral note you know that Mm, that is mm. that is happening of like you know you could say it's not altruistically administered because he is the perpetrator and i get that but the time of the beast always passes you just you just articulated for us the truism of that statement uh or perhaps even the universality of it the objective nature of it and so there's a world where even if i'm not the perpetrator of a thing but i sense violence fomenting amongst good people yeah yeah that the that the pastoral call that the time of the beast always passes you know like it's 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 an attempt to calm that storm you mm, know mm-hmm. in others I, I don't know i'm just sort of riffing at this point but uh um, no no it makes it does make some sense to me and I, and again i think i think it just comes back to it could be easy i don't know if this isn't i don't know if this is specifically what you were scratching at but it can be really easy to be very cynical about, uh, you can call them platitudes of those kinds of expressions. And in the mouth, coming out of the mouth of a person 
later revealed to be the Beast himself, it would be easy to dismiss a line like that as cynical, ironic platitude. But again, I find a power in it that even when there are tremendous flaws or even when there are uh, even going beyond flaws to overt you know, sin, wickedness, wrongdoing in the heart of a person, that these declarations still hold power. I think that's really sure, what I'm scratching sure. at. These declarations still hold power um, even when they are, and naturally we decide how to respond to them and we re-decide how seriously to take them. But, um, but such things, you know, the scriptures say that the word of God will not return void. Now, naturally that, you know, in context is, is re- uh, referring to the actual communication of God to his people, sure. that it will, it will accomplish what he sets it out to do. But I think there is a principle underneath it that it's like, yeah, t- truth has a power and that, that power can be wielded in perhaps a number of different ways, but it, uh, it will prove itself effective and true um, ultimately, regardless of who is trying to wield it or who is trying to hide it or who is trying to, you know, as Shakespeare said, not the scriptures, but as Shakespeare said, the truth will out. You know, like it, it will, it just has a way of bursting through the barriers and it has sure. a way of, of um, you know, finding itself in the narrative. And, uh, and I, I take great comfort in that. Um, I take tremendous comfort in the fact of like, yes, there is evil, wickedness, um, injustice, wrongdoing, but I do think there is a not superficial hope to be grasped in like, no, but there, these things are true and there is a power in that truth that will, you know, it's like the, the oft quoted, perhaps too oft quoted King quote of, uh, not Stephen King, Martin Luther King, <laughs> um, where he said, uh, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. You know, like that also itself is a is a true statement that sure. will, you know, will prove itself true in ultimate uh, in ultimate reality. And I, I, I don't know, I take profound comfort in that, regardless of who it is or what flaws they have, who speaks it out. So that's my feelings on Silver Bullet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's places we could go, but you know the we're out of gas. The wheel, the, the wheelchair is <laughs> out of sputtering. Gas. Yeah, the the wheelchair is silver, silver bullets, sort of you know coasting coasting now, or just in cruise control. Um, do you well? Do you want to go ahead and pivot us into the the fog meter? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So um, on uh, every episode where we cover a film, we uh, maybe even beyond that, we're going into a measurement where we rank these films by uh, the rank of our title, Fear and God. Um, so we're ranking it on its frights and its substance and themes, etc. Um, I'll go first on the fear measurement. So for me, as I mentioned before, it's kind of it's it's pretty accessible. I think there are some great suspense moments and and it, it's just a fun fright flick. If I were measuring it purely on the basis of its scares, I'm not going to give it higher than about a five. Um, but uh, but it is it is very accessible, and I think it, it, this is almost a case where judging it on its scares pivots negative. When actually, I mean that as a very big positive. Like it's really accessible. That's a, that's actually higher than I was expecting from you. Um, I think I'm going to land at a four on scares. Um, it it just has this almost Amblin esque kind of oh yeah like you know whimsy to it if, if i don't know that i'm actually wanting that word specifically but this 
um, re- you you are not really ultimately concerned for the well being of them. Ultimately, you know, it's like okay, right, you know, right, I'm kind of right, right. I'm kind of I'm kind of safe in the storyteller's hands here because I'm pretty sure these characters are more or less safe, except Hole Brady. Um, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> he was not safe. Um, so I mean, and honestly, my four probably about three of those is that dream sequence. It's fantastic. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, it's so wonderful. Well, what would you say for the for the God measurement? Um, I think that uh, you know the that line itself that that has become the refrain takeaway and just some of the some of the loose meditation on kind of the nature of violence and our response to our own pain um i think i'm gonna go for a five on substance all right um i'm gonna go just a slightly higher than you i'm gonna go for six and um i do think that there's there's some things there it's almost funny because if we're measuring substance by by the the capacity of the story to unpack or explore certain themes, um, then I feel like, you know, s- six is maybe a little too high. It's a little generous. But if we're going based off, like, character richness, it would probably be much higher for me. And so that's why I pivoted a little bit up. But, um, but hey, we still give this a solid five out of ten on the fog meter. So that is, yeah, uh, I, that's, 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 yeah, that's legit. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's quite legit. Um, listener, I already pivoted my hand earlier, but listeners already know whether or not I would recommend this film. I think everybody should see it. Like, I, like, I think ev- absolutely everybody should see this film unless you are just absolutely not going to watch a scary movie ever. I think this is a really great, um, sweet, fun, occasionally frightening one that you can sink your teeth into. And I really, really, I really, really <laughs> like it. <laughs> How about for you? Would you recommend it? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I, not having watched the trailer, not having read anything, I literally knew nothing clearly because of my ignorance about the wheelchair stuff, but <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed the watching of it. It was a lot of fun. Um, it's got a lot of heart to it. Uh, the relationships are very well drawn. Uh, the character dynamics are really potently uh, executed. Yeah, there's a lot to like in this movie. Awesome, awesome. Well, there, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hashtag nineteen. We've got two two uh, glowing endorsements for Silver Bullet. I would also recommend if you can seek it out, Cycle of the Werewolf. Um, I don't. I actually don't think it's available digitally. I think you have to buy the physical copy of it. But um, but yeah, I highly recommend it. Uh, Nathan recommends it as well. So. Uh, Nathan. Reed. Next week, man. Next week. Next week what? I, Tell I'm me. So, I'm so excited because next week we're creeping up on you. We're going to one of the, as the tagline indicated, the most fun you'll have being scared, uh, which, uh, which I actually quite, uh, quite agree, at least with the sentiment, if not the actual factual <laughs> nature of the statement. We're going to George Romero directed Stephen King written creep show. It's our first anthology film that we've ever done on the show. I'm very, very right. excited. Yeah, we've never done one before, so I'm very, very excited about that. So check out creep show, and uh, we will be continuing with hashtag 19 next week. Nathan, thank you so Reed. much for watching Silver Bullet and for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, brother. Thank you for, you know, just just manufacturing me a new faster uh, uh, mode of transportation um, <laughs> so we can get get to more of these horror movies in a more timely fashion. Thank <laughs> you for having me along. Guys, we will see you and six of your other short stories next week for Creep <laughs> Show. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> You're welcome, you booger. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. You can continue this conversation in a variety of ways. On Twitter, at The Fear of God. On Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. You can like or follow us on Facebook or join the Fear of God Facebook discussion group. Follow Reed on Twitter, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, at The Nathan Rouse. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com or visit morethanonelesson.com to comment on the official episode posts. And lastly, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.